0: So it's very warm. We should be having some cold temperatures. We would normally have a little bit of snow, maybe not on the ground, but we would have had some snow um, prior to the 18th of December when we are <laughs> recording. Is, I,
1: th- I think we should start every podcast with a detailed weather report. Oh, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, Carry cause,
0: on. Because you can't get that anywhere else. I mean, right <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of rain. There's water in my basement. Um, I get soaked oh. walking home, and it's just very uncharacteristic. I've lived here much of my life, and I've never had a December, mid-December Rainstorm like this, um, full of do you, wind. Do you think well. you might lose power? We lost power here at the house earlier when I was at school Ooh. for at least two hours. Um, but yes, if I just disappear or go silent, <laughs> that was a joke. If I go silent at some point, it means that we. That lost. That was good. I felt. I literally fell for that. That was good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> should have waited longer. It's all timing. It <laughs>
1: Real Cinema Club. I'm James
0: Uzica. And I'm Andreas Llorente. And every week on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch an old movie, we watch a new movie, we talk a lot about both of them, trying to draw some connections. And we're looking at the joys and pitfalls of privilege this episode as we watch the new Alexander Payne film, The Holdovers. We'll compare it to the 1980s British film, Another Country. So, had you seen Another Country before? Nope, never even heard of it. Well, I've heard oh. of other countries. I'm not that ignorant, but um, I've <laughs> never heard of the film Another Country. And it, originally, I thought it was a bad title, and then I thought about it, and I think it's actually not a bad title.
1: <laughs> um, it was a yeah, it was a kind of a, a very uh, zeitgeisty film in Britain in the 80s. And you know, when we come to it, I will read you the list of uh, all the. British actors who got their stars either in this film or in the stage play version of this film. Okay. It was a launch pad for basically everybody Uh, who was a kind of uh, young, handsome British actor in the early 80s.
0: Yeah, they all look like little boys. Mm. It's funny, they're people you know, but they're little boys.
1: Does that say something about another country or does that say something more about to, uh, to you and me and even the policemen are looking younger now? But before, if we talk about another country, uh, we should talk about um, the new Alexander Payne picture, The Holdovers. So you recommended this. Um, it's not out officially in the UK until Ooh. next month, but it was out in the US in November. Am I right?
0: Yeah, I feel like it's been out... Um just before American Thanksgiving, so maybe the twenty in the twenties of November, somewhere there. It's usually when we start to get a lot of um, uh, award season fodder um, coming out, and this is an, among that class of films, I guess. So I'd say it's been out for probably just about a month, maybe a little less.
1: And it's, I'm delighted to see, I knew very little about this, I'm delighted to see, it's a Christmas film. It is. Uh, I, a- Amazon here have been advertising uh, Your Christmas or Mine too on the sides of all the buses. <laughs> and I was starting to worry that we would have to cover that as our Christmas film this year. But no, the holdovers Ooh, have saved us. Yes. Uh, it's a Christmas picture. Yeah. With a lot of heart. Yeah. Uh, that did
0: work out well, yeah.
1: Directed by Alexander Payne. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And in many ways, uh, it feels like a a sequel to Sideways.
0: Oh, uh, Paul Giamatti immediately thinks makes you think of that. I think of Sideways, of course. And I think this might be the first time they've worked together since Sideways. I think it is. Yes. Okay. Interestingly,
1: apparently Paul Giamatti was originally cast uh, as the lead in Downsizing, Alexander Payne's film from about six years ago, which uh, in the end went to Matt Damon. I think he spent a long time uh, writing and preparing that film. Paul Giamatti was attached for a while. Um, I haven't seen Downsizing. I haven't seen Nebraska, I have seen The Descendants, I have seen Election, I have seen About Schmidt. so I'm fairly familiar with his work. What I was not familiar with about Alexander Payne is that he was one of the co-writers of Jurassic Park 3... Did you see that? Heaven, no. No, no, goodness. No, please, no. Please, no. (laughs) Now, I'm happy to fight anybody who disparages Jurassic Park 3, because I remember seeing that many years ago. And it's a lot better than anybody really, uh, than I really expected. A lot better than it kind of deserves to be. Jurassic Park 3, actually, a pretty fun romp. Do you think that's due to the writing? Almost certainly. Uh, and any film that's uh, that's a fun romp, yeah, okay. I put it always down to the writing, mm. absolutely. Apparently he was also an uncredited writer on Meet the Parents. You must have seen oh, that. yeah, definitely saw that, yes. Um, and it's only after I read that that I realised, you know what, there is a little bit of an Alexander Payne flavour yeah. to Meet the Parents, which I can identify in that film, you're right.
0: So he must be a bit of a script doctor. I guess he
1: must be. mm mm-hmm. um, I I have a copy of Sideways on my shelf. Um mm. I think he's earned his script doctoring fees because yeah. I oh, think yeah. he's a terrific writer. Uh right, the holdovers. Uh, this year's picture. Tell you what, shall I tell you the story?
0: Please do. It's a Christmas story. I need it's one. It's a Christmas story.
1: <laughs> Cute Christmas music. Oh. Do we have Christmas music? Hey, no. This, it, this is the closest I could find to Christmas music, which coincidentally is exactly the same as the normal music. But <laughs> this is
0: a classy, <laughs> a classy operation here.
1: <laughs> if I if I try really hard before I put the pod out, I'll I'll dub some jingle bells over the <laughs> over the drum part. It is December 1970, uh, and at Barton College, uh, a posh Massachusetts private school, and I'm going to check with you. I presume a fictitious school.
0: Uh, Barton, as far as I know, but oddly enough, um, I went and started researching some of the schools where it was filmed, oh, and yes. I've got a friend who went to, um, she recognized a lot of the locations. She even said she drank port in the back of a chapel, which is seen in one of the, in, in one of the scenes of the film. Um, it was mostly, at, um, the, she went to Northfield, Mount Hermon, so it's Western Massachusetts, but I think that some things were shot at some other schools as well. But Barton is fictitious as far as I know.
1: Right, okay, right. Fictitious, but barely disguised. Okay, so um, it's Christmas and a small handful of pupils must remain at school over the Christmas break, supervised by Mr. Hunnam, Paul Hunnam, the classics teacher, uh, who is Paul Giamatti in this film, and supervised by Mary Lamb, who is the school cook. Uh, So there is the usual friction. Uh, between jocks and nerds and new boys and older boys um, until uh, one of the boys' fathers shows up to take all of the holdovers away for an impromptu skiing trip. Everyone except Angus, uh, who is a clever but malcontent boy whose parents cannot be reached in time to approve the trip. So, uh, for Christmas, it's just Angus, Mary, Mary. And Paul left at the school, but each of them—it's a movie. Each of them has secrets and depths, and perhaps uh, as a little trio, they will all learn something more from each other than just the dates of the Punic Wars. What? Wow! Um, That's lovely. <laughs> Do you like that? I, I mean... didn't. I didn't. This, so there's been a big thing about. Um, Uh, plagiarism in social media uh, that I've kind of seen on YouTube the last two or three weeks. Um, And uh, usually I write my synopses myself because I think, oh, it's good practice. It proves that I've seen the film, you know, type something out. Um, And two weeks ago, uh, I was in a rush. And so I... I cribbed some of the synopsis from Wikipedia, and immediately this uh, this big controversy about plagiarism erupted across the internet, and I <laughs> felt extremely sheepish and guilty. So that was my own work. I promise I didn't oh, steal that from anybody. Great work. Uh, so, uh, as we already said at the top of the show, this this is kind of the sequel to Sideways, isn't it? Insofar as it's it's Alexander Payne again, it's yeah. Paul Giamatti again. Yeah. Um, it surprises me that they haven't worked together since. Yeah, you know, because it feels like the two of them go together so well um and uh sideways and this film pair together so well they're both you know they're kind of body buddy comedies yeah um you know they both have quite some cerebral main characters yeah you know they they both kind of have these um central themes about isolation and regret you know and substance abuse romantic misadventure redemption you know i i feel like they Go hand in hand, these two films, they belong together. And um, if any film uh, sits next to the shelf with sideways, that's a pretty, um, pretty impressive place to sit in my book.
0: Yeah, they also have the, the road trip. It seems to be kind mm. of an Alexander Payne uh, trademark. Yeah, when we were looking for another film to pair with it, I was suggesting election, but more on the school um, angle. But I think you're right. I mean, I, I think probably that's the thing about his body of work is they're all going to go well together because I think he's really, he's really looking at human frailty in some ways, and you know how we get through hard times and and the frustration of life sometimes, and how it you find joy in these bizarre moments. And I think Alexander Payne's really good at doing that. Sort of does feel an extension of um, his character, Paul Giamatti's character. Uh, miles from sideways because he's this remember he had that big book that he was lugging around he was writing his book and then he ends up just getting drunk and kind of looking over the book and not being very happy with what he'd written but here in this book too it's uh, in this film too he's he's doing some writing from a you know historical perspective but he's you know I, I, I think he's got great range and I don't think he's playing the same character but you definitely relate to him in one because it's Paul Giamatti and in this film his name is Paul. Right. Um, and uh, I think it, it's a similar journey. It's not – you know, Paul Giamatti is never going to play the the handsome romantic lead I don't think. Um, but he does play these sort of intellectual uh, comic um, sort of um, self-effacing characters very, very well I think. Um, so he's just human. He's just human, I think, and that's one thing that came to me in watching this film: is that Alexander Payne makes films for humans. Yeah, and that that might be a really stupid thing to say because most people who go to see films these days are actually humans. Although we we are <laughs> getting into the AI generation, so things are going to change. People are going to start <laughs> making films for AI so that they can sort of retell the films to humans,
1: while well, the AI instruct us to sweep up the popcorn. Yeah, yeah, clean the exactly. Yes. <laughs> it's i mean i you know i couldn't agree i think that the word that i wrote in my notes uh, after watching this was this is a wonderfully crafted film mm. i think it's just you know a terrific example of craft i was grinning all the way through i just couldn't really help it it's just so tremendously satisfying yeah. although i though you know we'll probably come onto this part of the 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 sheer neat satisfaction of the film did leave me feeling like you know maybe maybe it is very slightly pat um and you know maybe it is a little bit uh self-satisfied as well as as well as satisfying i don't know so i mean i I I think you know we certainly we start with some fairly stock characters um but uh you know they are allowed to develop we do learn more about them you know and by the end of the film they are kind of proper 3d characters with kind of proper detail and nuance that, yeah you know, i think you've phrased it very well these are characters that feel like real actual people yeah you know um to begin with you know, they look a little bit like archetypes but you know they are allowed to deepen and we do perceive them as real, real proper people yeah.
0: with many layers um, by the end of the film something very interesting about the structure of this film and the craft of this film is that you start out with quite a number of characters there are a lot of students there are a lot of professors um, and then they start getting picked off sort of one by one because they're going away for vacation. It reduces to this five young men and Giamatti and Mary in this in, enclosed space. Um, so the stock characters, I think, start to disappear more and more. And you finally just get to the heart of the story, which is the three characters who are left behind, yeah. the, holdover, the true holdovers. And then the depth, I think, happens. But there's a lot of shorthand early on. You've got the jock kid, the stoner kid, um, the yeah. young kid who's going to cry, the kid from another country, you know, whatnot. All these people are with us for a short period of time. All of those stock, stodgy old professors or, or uh, private school teachers are gone after a very short time. And you're just stuck with the the three people and you're stuck with them at the school. And then the depth, I think, really starts to emerge. And then they sort of develop and they even go into other worlds where they are maybe less comfortable. And that, that gives you the story. So I do agree with you that there's sort of a lot of shorthand and stock character stuff at the beginning, but it, it doesn't last for long, which is a real positive thing. And I think it's smart. We
1: got to about the 40 minute mark in the film Mm -hmm. and um, I was the one who suggested we should pair it with another country. And I was starting to kick myself thinking, no, we should have paired it with The Breakfast Club because this is like the posh kids breakfast club. And it kind of is until about the 40 minute mark. Yeah. Um, And it looks like that's all the film is going to be until it takes this sudden left hand turn, like you say, and Mm -hmm. and, um, and they thin out the the characters. So it's, it's a clever film. It does continue to subvert your expectations every half hour or so. You know, they they pair away a little bit further or they peel back another layer or they look a little bit deeper or, you know, they change the focus. Um, you are these kind of regular intervals. It's a clever way of structuring the film. And we'll talk a little bit about the opening. Um, I know that yeah, you often like to talk about opening image and closing image. Yeah. Um and so I kind of thought I would try and pay attention to that this time around. Mm-hmm. I find it hard to pay attention. You know what I'm like. <laughs> um, the, open, the opening image um, is of a whole bunch of kids who we never see again for the rest of the film with a, a choir master who we never see again for the yeah. rest of the film. Yep. You know, and they're singing in this kind of close harmony. Um, you know, it is it is an interesting opening. I think it says something a little about, you know, about you know, people working together, but also sort of about something about privilege and about the rather etiolated sort of uh highfalutin world yeah um, that we are entering without it necessarily really introducing any of the characters but once you have that then you have you know and again i often bang about on about this these nice little short scenes that that sort of just key you into the archetypes that you're dealing with so we start with um with paul in his study uh you know and he's kind of smoking his pipe and he's marking some term papers and I don't know what you thought, I honestly, that tiny little scene um where he's his crumpled a little set of rooms in the attic, and he's got a desk next to a window and books everywhere, and a typewriter and a stereo that's playing and you know it looks like it's like a nineteen seventies version of the lo fi hip hop girl on YouTube. Do you ever see that video? Like no. it's like it's just like a little um thirty second animated loop of a girl studying uh with an animated cat next to her. Um, and it's just like a constant YouTube stream. Oh, really? <laughs> um, and she kind of she writes some notes on a bit of paper, and then turns the page, and you know, and then the animation loops again. And so it's like just a constant looping video of somebody studying, huh. while you have some sort of low BPM hip hop in the background, and it's supposed to sort of establish this mood of of um, it's kind of it's like a, a video to concentrate by. And this seemed like the 1970s version. I, I thought Paul Hunnam's little study. Uh, in his crummy little rooms, that looked like my version of my happy place. I must ah. say, uh, that that came up on screen. I thought, oh, you know what? I would, I would. There are days when I would give my right foot to be that guy sitting in that that little room with a low ceiling and a window that looks out on a field somewhere, and a typewriter, yeah, and uh, you know, music on a gramophone. Um it just looked fantastic.
0: Yeah, definitely characterization too. You're just showing someone in their most immediate environment. Early on in the film. So you get a sense of who he is. You clearly get a sense of how
1: kind of lonely he is, don't you? With his sort of, his rather grungy bath and his sink that has um, kind of grime crusted around it. And it's, you know, it's, this is a place where an older man lives on his own. Yes. And it gets all of that information across visually. It's Yeah.
0: in in, information and inflammation correct me if i'm wrong isn't there a tube of hemorrhoid cream in the bathroom in that first season you know this guy immediately and when as i was typing hemorrhoids i I realized i never really know how to spell hemorrhoids and that's a good thing right it's just i'm not that intimately that proves
1: that you are not writing it on your grocery list every week (laughs) Exactly. exactly yes
0: but again great characterization within seconds really and then, so we have
1: these other little introductory scenes. We see Mary in the kitchen. Yeah. You know, she's a kind of organizing lunch and she's kind of like a little bit dour, but quite exacting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and she kind of, she's the one who checks the clock and tells the rest of the kitchen staff to hurry up. Yeah. And then we had this kind of little mini scene of of Angus, like in the dorm, being kind of bright, but sort of spiky and hard to like. So they each get their little introductory scene. It's yep. kind of this great mm-hmm. textbook screenwriting. You know, we see each of the characters in their own milieu before you put them together. Yeah. And so you know who they, they all are yep. before the story commences. It's, you know, it's very good, little efficient bit of writing.
0: And you do see, um, you get a scene where um, he's teaching and he's presented as this sort of a uh, gruff, strict, tough guy teacher who's giving them homework over over the break, a real stick-in-the-mud and I think it's at that point when one of the students says to him, at least pretend to be a human being, which I think is obviously uh, – well, maybe this is, a, again, a, a, a film made for the artificial intelligence crowd or something like that. But um, you know, it's just that he doesn't really understand young people anymore um, and he's you know exceptionally hard on them. Um, so the, the animosity between students, which includes Angus, um, and, and Hunnam is pretty clear early on.
1: Uh, but he's kind of—he's—he's he's so cheerful and witty and erudite with it, isn't he? Yeah. You know, it's—it's it's a pleasure to hear him harangue the kids because he's full of great gags. I mean, there is, although we often say dialogue is the least important part of a script, there is some great dialogue in this script. You know, great, witty, clever, spiky, funny, heartfelt dialogue. I wrote a few down in my notebook here. Um, should we ring the spoiler bell actually? Because I'm going to spoil something now, so we should ring the spoiler bell before we talk about I the. I think dialogue. we're a little late, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's it's
0: that
1: yeah, time. See, of, would, it's that time
0: I, of year. We want to hear bells as often as possible.
1: <laughs> I would I would never cope in a in a, a school like this. I'd just be late for everything, <laughs> wouldn't I? I'd be the late kid. <coughs> there we go. There's a festive bell for us, or a, or a festive cough. <laughs> festive cough. seasonal cough first a spoiler. <laughs> um at the very end of the film uh paul tells you know, the head teacher as he's being sacked he tells him you are and always have been the human version of penis cancer <laughs> it's just a great little gag it's very, you know, it's, it's something where you know if you t- if if i told you that was a line lifted out of sideways i would believe you yeah. um yep. but uh but it's you know it, it lives at home very happily in this script it's uh it's very funny it's yeah cool. um or there's the scene uh, where uh, Angus and Paul go to the museum and they look at some some pots with with kind of uh, naked people on them uh, in the kind of the Greek ex- exhibit or whatever. And Angus tells him, you know, when you describe it like that and add in some pornography, it sounds so much more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's um yeah it's all a you know, great, cute little quotable, funny, well written lines. It's this is you know this is great. The quality screenwriting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, I think, you know, if you're going to have some dialogue, it should be with nice little flourishes and touches like that. Stuff that people will come up with, and they will say that. It's not, you know, all over the script, but there are five or ten of those little gems that really lift the whole script up, I think. One of my favorites is when um, Angus is going to be there um, And Paul isn't really that interested in creating a a, a home-like Christmas with with garlands and decorations and all that. And Mary says to him uh – uh-oh, F-bomb coming up. She says, don't F it up for the little – can I say asshole? I think I can say asshole. Don't F it up for the little asshole, which is just a great line. Um, That, uh, you know, she says it very earnestly, but it it really kind of sums it up because there is a lot of privilege that's addressed in this film quite openly, which is nice. Um, And she, I she has some love for Angus certainly by the end of the film, because they sort of become this um, uh, three amigos kind of situation. Um, But it's nice that she says that early on, like she's telling Paul um, he's got to do something for that. He's got to do something to make it special because um, Angus is definitely having a hard time. Um,
1: You mentioned that kind of the P word there privilege. And I, um, one interesting aspect of the way that the film is structured, by you know, gradually pairing away its protagonists and then you know, gradually uh, tightening focus, um, I felt like every half hour or so, the theme of the film or the the, the, the question of what the film is about kept changing. So now I always like to ask you, well, you know, what what's the film about? Yeah, and I think you know, it's you could take any one 30, 30 minute section. And decide that it's about something before mm-hmm. moving on to the next one, and 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 seeing it's a different theme. What do you think the film is about?
0: Was that a that's a is that a hypothetical, or is that that's the question? That's the question. That's,
1: yeah, sorry, yeah, that's that's like an actual question. I, yeah, it's because I know I'm not intelligent enough <laughs> to actually spot it. So I have to, when we get to the difficult stuff, I have to just ask you well, blandly and openly. I
0: like it when you you gave me there th- three different options because every thirty minutes the the film is about something different. But I actually think it's about something very. Very clear and, 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 and tightly uh, delivered here. Um, and I think that for me, there's this triple tragedy at the end of the second act. Oh. It's the holiday party. Mary has lost her son, um, who was a student at the school as well, probably one of the only black students at the school. And yeah. uh, he was, you know, he was able to attend because she worked there and it's The assumption is that she took the job so that he could go to school for free. Um, And she's finally – it's probably her first Christmas without him or maybe, you know, second Christmas or something like that. So they're at this holiday party, the three of them together, and Mary breaks down over the loss of her son. Um, Angus misses this chance at a real connection with a young girl at the party. Um, Yeah. I think they kiss, they're flirting over this wonderful finger painting scene. It's 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 a lovely scene. It's a nice touch, it's kind of erotic and, and you feel the energy between them. Um and Paul Hanum learns that Lydia, who's the woman throwing the party, um, and he's excited to he's, he starts to see her as a romantic interest. Um and he's even sprayed himself up and down with household cleaner or something because it has this body odor problem. <laughs> But a boyfriend of hers walks into the scene at this party. He's really getting excited to talk talk to her, and uh, he kisses her, and he realizes, oh, she already has someone in her life. So (laughs) there's this pain for everybody. It's this shared trauma moment, and I think for me, the theme really comes out of that because I think this film is mostly about empathy, Ah. just having some... minimal level of caring for one another at the very least. And from that, I think people uh, can form friendships. And I think, you know, you've got unlikely friendships that cross generations in this film, but I think they've all seen trauma in their lives and they're showing empathy for one another by the end of the film. And we learn more things after that, which is nice. But for me, that was sort of the end of the the second act, because there was this down moment where everyone just got kicked in the stomach and, um, then it spills into something else. And I, I understand why you're saying that there, there you do get these different feels throughout the film, which is great. That's a real you have know, to think a real treasure in a film. To have a sort of a sense more of like the, the privilege in the first act, um, maybe some of the trauma and the difficulty and then some of the empathy in the last act. So it, it definitely touches on a few things. So you set me up with a trick question and I tried to give you a coherent answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, you win. You win. I was I was trying to figure out what the what I would summarise the theme of the film. And I feel it's something like (sighs) that you should acknowledge the past, but don't forget that there is a future. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I I feel like at the beginning of the film, you know, all of the characters have this kind of slight attitude that it's sort of over for them in a way. I think um, that, you know, Mary has seen her son die um, and you know it looks like she's you know finding it difficult to see any kind of future ahead, and um you know Paul you know feels like he's kind of settling in for this kind of you know the comfortable last few years before he you know he's kind of ready to call it a day, can't imagine having any new adventures now, mm-hmm. and even Angus, now that his family has kind of disintegrated, he sort of feels like you know his life is disintegrated with it, and all he can do is to respond is kind of be spiky and yeah. You know he does his homework and keeps people at arm's length and you know just keep your head down and get through it. Mm-hmm. Um and yet, you know, by the end of the film, they've they've all kind of confronted the pain and sort of uh explored the pain. I might come out of it feeling like, you know, that there is a future. Yeah. Um and you know they all make this similar journey, but they all kind of have you know different stops in the journey and a different, you know, a a a different quality to the journey yeah but they all kind of make the same sort of journey i think it's you know it's a it's a great film i think uh and you know when it's a, a powerful theme well explored yeah um it's so well explored that i do sometimes feel like it occasionally spheres into neat um there are some kind of plot points where it feels you know just very slightly too um convenient yeah or too well balanced um, it's composed like a uh, a classical painting, yeah. and um, with, you know a little bit low on chaos and coincidence. But um, you know maybe that's a false impression, and I'm doing it doing it down.
0: Well, I, I think I agree with you, and I but I think that is for the audience. I think that makes it easy, easier to digest the whole story as an audience. And this is one of those films that really hits you with with laughter and tears. So it's really kind of satisfying. Um, a lot of what viewers need, I think. Um, and for me, I there's I think the chaos is really there. It's in this theme that we are all hot messes, and I think that's what they realize about one another. <laughs> and it's interesting because I saw this film right around the time that I lost a very dear friend. Um, and I just wish my friend had known that we're all hot messes. He wasn't the only hot mess. We were all hot messes, and we just have to. We sort of accept each other as hot messes. And for me, there's this very poignant moment that I thought was a great bonding moment between Angus and Paul and it's when Paul realizes that the two of them are on the same antidepressant
2: Mm, and I love yeah. that moment.
0: I thought that just showed how very clearly how all of a sudden Paul was going to understand that kid forever. And even if Angus didn't know that Paul was on the same antidepressant, at least Paul knew that. And I think that there was just a great bonding moment. And it just acknowledges that we all have lots of crap in our lives. And we have to know that even th- even if we don't know the specificity of the crap that we're going through or the others are going through. Um, we have to know that we have to accept one another and then show empathy for others. And it, for me, it's just so solid in this film. So it it does give a neat ending because it's hopeful, and I think viewers generally need that. I think it would have been a drag if it had been um, darker.
2: Man, and it wasn't. Yeah. It
0: wasn't super dark. I mean, it's definitely Alexander Payne. He just really balances the the comedy and the the sadness very very well. So. I know exactly what you're talking about, but I think it's again, it's just like really neat filmmaking. He's just very clean, and uh, he tells you a story. There's no doubt about you know. By the end of the story, it ends just fine, and you're not thinking, "Oh, what, what happened back there?" or "What was that all about?" I mean, it's I think it's very clear what his intentions are, and he it, it leaves you with that. That hope, but when you think about it, it's Paul sucking Crown Royal out of a bottle and spitting it onto the road as he goes <laughs> off into his future. So it's it's not that it's not that clean or that hopeful, really. Um,
1: yeah, one of the most admirable things, actually, about that little scene with the with the Liberian prescription, yeah. um, is that you know, they don't dwell on it. Yeah, and it must have been so tempting to come back to it or you know to kind of write another two pages of dialogue about it, and they don't. It's yeah. like it's a glance. And you and you move past it, and it's you know it's acknowledged and it moved past. It's you know it's that's restraint and control, which are, yeah yeah, two of my favourite characteristics in good writing. Ah. Um, I, another thing that I I have to mention before we move on is yeah. how much I liked the 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 look of the film. Yeah, this I'm not, I'm pretty sure there was some simulated dirt on the print on the version that I saw. Oh. Ah. Um, and just like kind of the colours, the the costumes, the set design, but even like the lenses, I think, the way that yeah. the stock was simulated. I'm sure they must have shot on digital, but but it certainly feels Felt like, film, like yeah. it belongs in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It just feels so authentic. All the smoking, you know, in so many scenes, yeah. you know, while they're cooking, while they're marking papers, yep. even while he's talking in the head's office, everybody is smoking a cigarette. Yeah, And even... Um, just some kind of great seventies songs, I looked up the soundtrack uh, on Apple music, and clearly there's some licensing issue because you can't listen to it in the u k oh um but it's, it's been a great few years for Cat Stevens. great to yeah. hear cat Stevens again yep um the whole you know the whole thing uh, doesn't feel like it's full of the obvious choices um for the costumes or the soundtrack yeah. um it's just just feels you know authentic and real. It feels to me like um if somebody. Uh, if you didn't know any of the actors and somebody told you that they had unearthed a 1972 classic um, and then showed it to you, you might possibly believe them because you know, I think they have a very authentic feel for
0: time and place in this film. Yeah, it's well done. Uh I definitely had that feel and I, I'll harp on this again regularly on this podcast, but I love having no cell phones in a film. <laughs> I love the low tech feel. Um, you know, I remember the seventies to a certain extent, um, even though I was very young, and it just felt like being home again in some ways. And um, I just think uh the pacing is it's not a, you know, it's not like a super fast paced film or anything like that, but the pacing is comfortable. It again, it's human. There's something super human about it. Um, low tech. When you set a film in the seventies, you I think it just opens up all these possibilities of just calming down and settling down, and really exploring yeah. people as opposed to exploring their possessions. I guess so. I love that, and I, I agree with you. Even the even the opening title sequence—it looks like it's got uh, these old uh, film company kind of uh,
2: yes. slides to open
0: it up. It's just—it's—it's it's fantastic. Um, and one other before we move on, one other yeah. thing that um,
1: is kind of worth singling out i think so great casting a lot of great performances paul giamatti you know just effortlessly fantastic brilliant um divine joy randolph i sat through a lot of the film thinking where where have i seen her before um and i think it is uh from that uh martin short selena gomez um series only murders in the building i think that is where i've seen her before but nowhere else um she hasn't done an enormous amount of work and she is just fantastic in this um Uh, The other person I kept scratching my head over for the whole of the film until I looked up uh, the Wikipedia page afterwards, Dominic Sessa, the young actor, plays uh, Angus Tully. Uh, You know what he's done before?
0: Uh, Some high school theatre or something. Yeah, that's right. Nothing is the answer. Nothing. He's
1: done nothing. (laughs) Absolutely incredible. Um, He somehow seems to have been... Gifted with the, uh, the, the voice that sounds like an extremely experienced voiceover artist. Yeah. So, all the way through, I was thinking, I know this guy's voice from something. What's, what's he been the voice of? He's yeah. done something that I've heard. No, he hasn't. Nothing. He's just Nothing. got that fantastic, beautiful voice. He's <laughs> yeah. just so listenable. There may be a chance that Dominic Sesser is basically playing himself in this film. But you know what? If he is, yeah. I expect to see him play himself in a whole bunch of other films because yeah. I enjoyed spending time with him and I'd happily spend time with him in a bunch of other feature films as well. Yeah. He was so watchable. Great performance. Fantastic.
0: I I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well cast. I mean that you get a good script with good with uh, good actors and you're probably going to make a good film especially if you're Alexander Payne. I mean <laughs> it's, I, he makes it look so effortlessly perfect. So it's um it's a real accomplishment for him, I think. But then
1: uh I know we were talking about privilege and I'm sure we will probably um talk about uh Privilege more when we come on to the B film yeah. uh, this week. Yeah. But um, no matter how privileged you are, there is one group that you can never hide from. Group uh, is yeah, Those guys are good.
0: <laughs> they will out you anywhere.
1: I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna preface my call to the cliche squad by saying I think there are plenty of cliches in this film, and I honestly didn't mind. Yeah. Um of <laughs> <laughs> There's, uh, so, like you know, the, the clever but aloof teacher who learns from his pupil, yeah. the rebel kid who hides his heartbreak and confusion. Yeah, um, Christmas is a time of loneliness and isolation. I made this kind of list that just yeah. goes on and on, but you know they're all there um but the, but it's the craft i think with which they are used this film is so well crafted that you know i'm happy to accept them that you know maybe i'm going to call them archetypes instead of clichés because yeah. i feel well disposed you know perhaps that's the polite name for a cliché an archetype um so there are clichés but you know what when, you know, when the film turns out as well and as entertaining and as high quality as this yeah i'm prepared to give it a pass
0: yeah i for me i think i got sucked into a brain a brain brain uh, set reset somehow it was that um because it's a period piece it's almost pe- cliche resistant to me because it comes from this <laughs> era which which is basically the primordial stew of clichés in the making even though it wasn't made in the 70s but it's set there so it and it, as you said before it passes on almost unmistakably for an early 70s film so i felt like yeah the clichés are there but this film is 50 years old so they can't really be <laughs> clichés how, how wrong, wrong i invented was. the cliches yeah, exactly so um i i am I'm, I'm with you i didn't mind them at all but should we go into a couple or did you just you did a nice little list there
1: well we sh- i think we should go into a couple and, okay. and it's because i know that the cliche score will find me if i don't <laughs> if i don't report something having actually called them up right. um my my top cliche here so um i've only written down one but i've written a little paragraph about it in my notes here uh character with a family photograph um, yeah. I don't know about you but when when I was uh, when I was at film school when we were there together um, it was uh, Roger Hyams one of his precepts that he taught me was that uh, if you have a scene if you write a scene with a character looking at a photograph your script is in trouble is what he used to say and I still think that, that <laughs> I still think that is true uh, wonderfully written though I think this film is Uh Angus is largely introduced when we see him looking at a photograph of his family. Mm. Um, you know, in that moment, even at the time, I was very slightly oof. Yeah. Um, you know, I know we talk about visual storytelling on the pod, but this is not not what we mean. Yeah. Um, people looking at photographs, you know, uh, does not count. So um, I, will, I will give it a black mark for that, um, even though it does... Uh, feed into an amusing scene where somebody writes something rude on the photograph and then throws it back at you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. so it's kind of a set up for a gag, but nonetheless. Have you got anything on your list that you want
0: to confess? I've got a couple. Um, I think the the jacketed with elbow patched um, private school <laughs> teachers being all serious and older is a bit of a cliche. <laughs> um, a lot of those jobs in the Northeast here don't pay well, so they actually tend to be young teachers who are early in their careers and are oh basically going to parties with students as opposed to being that strict but it's uh it's an image we have and it, again it's that shorthand you mean you know where you are in this film within the first few minutes because you see Paul G. Maddy as that kind of teacher um, can, and, I,
1: can I quickly quickly ask a point of order here yeah of
0: course yeah um the students at these schools are under 18 yeah probably um so they, <laughs> these schools function like um public schools More high school. I mean, there might you saw some students who were probably middle school aged, which would be, I don't know, like 10 to 13 or something like that. Right, yeah. Um, But most of them, as far as I know, are boarding schools where students would be what we could say high school age, so 14 to 18 or something like that. But some of them will have what we'd call a postgraduate program, where if you didn't do particularly well in your public high school and you had some money, you might go do an extra year at one of these private schools in order to... Um, just make up your grades and get into a better okay. university. Some some athletes go to these schools because they'll have great sports programs. So it gives okay, them a chance right. to learn their craft a bit more before moving on to a big school. So. so if so if you are a
1: young teacher going to parties with the kids at your school, it won't necessarily raise an eyebrow or will it?
0: Nowadays, for sure. In the 70s, I think probably not oh. as much. Yeah, you are right, um, but actually. You, In
1: the 70s, uh, the rules were very different.
0: I mean, they? I have a number of friends who their first teaching job's right out of university, so they would be 22 to 25, sort of. First two or three years of their careers were teaching 18-year-olds, you know, so there's just a five-year difference yeah, there. Yeah, okay. So you've got not fully formed um, adults teaching, certainly not fully formed adults, so it's a, <laughs> it can be a, a cesspool, I think. But um, my, my other cliché is... It's about spatial awareness, I think. I always get concerned when I see people packing trailers and moving to that next stage in life because there's just some loosey goose stuff there with loose objects that are going to move around because <laughs> pro- you know, these things start to settle and resettle as the journey goes on. So renting trailers and packing them poorly before you leave behind on a major life change, that to me is a cliché. And I wanna see the, the larger boxier objects are gonna go in the front. I wanna see a carefully packed van. That's what I want to see on one of these in one of these films. I don't want to see this haphazard arrangement of goods in the back of a trailer. Uh there is a great um uh French science fiction
1: film about time travel, uh which I can't remember the name of. And it's like if I so badly cannot remember the name that I'm gonna look up the name okay. of the film as we talk. Uh no, not that, not that. Yeah, come on, Google. Help me out here. I've even got the DVD on. In fact, you know what? I'm going to put my headphones down and I'm going to look for the DVD on on my shelf here before I carry on with this anecdote. Hold on.
0: I could talk about another potential cliche that actually kind of doesn't happen in this film. Um, I love this moment at the end where Angus thanks... Um, Paul for being human as opposed to, like, a human teacher as opposed to being thanked for a superhuman teacher. I
1: I found it. Time crimes.
0: Okay, okay. I was just telling the... the, What was I missing? I I was just telling the listeners about um, this moment that could be a cliché, but it's not, and it's really well done in the film. It's um, at the end where Angus goes up to Paul as he's at the poorly packed uh, trailer that we just mentioned a moment ago. Um, He thanks him for like sort of being a human teacher, not for being a superhuman teacher. In in Poets Society, for example, you know, like Robin Williams is this superhuman teacher, this great teacher, but it's actually kind of, it sort of reverts the the cliche, I think, in the sense that he's just thanking him for being who he was and not being uh, like this super teacher. And they never say that he's a great teacher, I don't think, he doesn't look like a great <laughs> teacher, right? So it's just a nice thing. It could have been a really cliche moment, but um, that was something I really liked in the film. And it also killed a little bit of time when you were going to get that film from your shelf,
1: um, I, I hope you've killed enough time for people to forget that I said it was French because it's not French. Time <laughs> Crimes is a Spanish film <laughs> <laughs> um, about a guy who inadvertently ends up traveling backwards and forwards through yeah. time. Um, but the very opening shot of the film is um, uh, a shot of the character who gets home and finds that he, the, the back of his car is sprung open on the drive home. Okay. And there's an absolutely enormous mess strung out behind yeah. him all the way up his driveway onto the road of all these things that he must um, clean up and tidy up. And that opening shot of the film basically summarizes what he has to do for the whole of the rest of the film, because he travels through time and continues to mess things up worse and worse and worse and have to go back, try to tidy it up and then mess it up even worse. Um, So it feels to me like maybe uh, Paul Giamatti's trailer is just uh, a a foreshadowing of the time travel movie, which he's going to make next.
0: Nice. Thank you for that. (laughs) So now I'm going to watch that film just to see a trailer. (laughs) <laughs> well packed or not <laughs> shall we have a break um
1: and uh and then we will come back and we will talk about uh, another film about another school for the wealthy another country
2: Ooh. <laughs> uh.
1: Here at the Two Real Cinema Club, we're happy to announce a new podcast starting in the new year. It's going to be called What Stupid Thing Has Elon Musk Done This Week? In it, we'll be looking every week at what new idiotic thing Elon Musk has done each week. Maybe he'll launch a new truck made out of paper. Maybe he'll turn the Twitter logo into a swastika for laughs. Maybe he'll announce that he's planning to live on Mercury by the end of next year. Maybe he'll claim to have invented money but a completely new kind of money that's made from carrots, but digitised. Maybe he'll he'll sack everyone who works for him who has the name beginning with the letter P. Then he'll spend millions of dollars booking a stadium where he'll promise to take on Greta Thunberg in a wrestling match. And then he'll launch a new AI chatbot called Vladim AI Putin. And then he'll get a picture of Joe Rogan tattooed on his chin, but cover the tattoo with a beard and then shave the beard off live at a press conference as he shouts out, how do you like them beans? They're all about as likely as each other, and we will be covering all of these stupid things that Elon Musk does every week in What Stupid Thing Has Elon Musk Done This Week? (laughs) In fact, given recent events, we might need to make the podcast twice weekly. or daily.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that if if no one else has done that, we've got to get that going fast. (laughs) God knows there's enough material (laughs) though. Yes. We are back to talk about another country
2: mm. and
0: that's that's the name of the film we're not just going to talk about geography here <laughs> or some other political situation in the world although we, we <laughs> might do that but we're going to talk about another country which is I think a film from 1983 or
1: 1984
0: yeah um, directed by Marek Kaniewska and yep. uh, written by Julian Mitchell based on his play um, the previous credit that I saw um in for Julian Mitchell it was Vincent and Thea, which is a film that I want to see, but I've actually never seen it. I remember wanting to see it wanting to see it and not seeing it back in the mid nineties, maybe.
1: And that feeling has stayed with you.
0: Yeah, for years and years. Because I know it has Tim Roth, I believe, who plays Vincent Van Gogh. Yeah, I think it does. It's,
1: it's a Robert Oldman picture, isn't it? Um and I, I think now I could be wrong, but I think uh, there are two versions of it. There is a a feature film version and then the same uh, material was then converted into like a, uh, a television series or like oh. a limited series. Oh, nice. So I think there are two different versions that you can see. Um, he also wrote Wild, uh, the Oscar Wilde film yeah. with Stephen Fry. I don't know if you've it, seen that.
0: Yeah, I've heard. I've not seen it, but that was the other film, a credit that um, I did recognize. Um
1: and then a, bu- a bunch of, of uh, episodes of Inspector Morse. Yeah. So is, is that something that's made it over to the US? Inspector Morse. Do you know what that is?
0: I do. I've seen a little bit of it, but I'm trying to think if it may have been when I was in England when I saw it. But I think oh, it yeah, had played yeah, on. Exactly. I think it went on um, syndicated or cable TV here in the states at one point.
1: Fine. For about fifteen or twenty years, it was utterly unavoidable yeah. in the UK. I think. Yeah. Sure.
0: Um, do we know if the play was also called Another Country?
1: I believe it was okay. yes absolutely
0: so I alluded earlier uh, to the title that I, it seemed very simple and at first I didn't really like it as a title but I think he's talking about an England that no longer exists uh, number one and then it, it does sort of start in Soviet Russia as well so one of the characters sort of ends up in another country as well but um, I'll I'll get your, te- your take on that if you can give us a little context your background and and Tell me why we paired these two films together.
1: Do you have any other questions for me, Council? So, when when you suggested the holdovers, and I'm so glad you did, um, uh, I just had a little look at material from the film, and um, the, the, the first thing that popped into my mind was. Uh, another country, I think, in part because of that sort of feeling of uh, wealthy kids mm. in a school with that kind of uh, rural p- private school architecture. Yeah. Um, that, you know, they're, so they are they're both films set in the past, um, but they are kind of both films sort of about privilege and problems that we see in the world today yeah um so i felt like you know the two of them you know they are kind of covering similar ground it was only after i watched the whole of the holdovers that yeah. i realized that you know i had only based my decision based on about the first 40 minutes of that film and if we had uh chosen a film after i'd watched the whole of the holdovers then yeah, yeah maybe we would have gone with sideways or something like that yeah but, but yeah if you've watched that first 40 minutes of the holdover um, then Another Country, I think, is what pops into my mind. I mm-hmm. think the two, yeah, the, the two deserve to be compared.
0: Oh, definitely, yeah. They work well together. Um, in this film, the cast includes what I call baby forms of R- <laughs> Rupert Everett, Colin Firth. Who's yeah. a, well, he's recognisable, but not clearly recognisable. And Ellis. Um So yeah. these are your three leads. They're all playing young men.
1: Um, I... I, I promised earlier that I would talk about how yeah. the, this, the film was a launchpad. Um, yeah. So the play, Another Country, was uh, originally a theatre hit in 1981. Yeah. Um, and the, the theatre production became a launchpad for a whole bunch of highly oh. successful actors of the era. So yeah. including Rupert Everett, yes. Colin Firth, yes. But also Kenneth Branagh, who mm. uh, got his kind of big stage start in Another Country, and Daniel Day-Lewis. Wow. So you think to write the play that, uh, that starts the careers of those four... Yeah, um, surely you would have uh, British film producers coming up and buying you a beer every day for the rest of your life, wouldn't you? Yes.
0: You yeah. Well, it worked. They got the film <laughs> made, that's for sure.
1: Um, the film. I made a few notes here. The film. So it had a budget of about 1.2 million pounds. Um, it did. It got an award at Cannes for best artistic contribution. I'm not entirely sure what wow. that award is for or what it means, but I think they wanted to they, they wanted to give it um, plaudits. Um, uh, they tried to shoot it at Eton, which the apparently the, the 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 school in the film is supposed to be. It's supposed to be Eton, although they never mentioned the name. Uh, Eton didn't want to be associated with it. Who's surprised there? So it was largely shot not at a school, but at Oxford University ah. um, and at the homes of a number of aristocratic families in the UK. Mm. Um, so not only so for a film about privilege, not only are some of these scenes shot in... Um, uh, universities associated with privilege, yeah. but uh, homes, mm, yeah. personal people's actual homes associated with privilege. Yeah,
0: is... it uh, yeah, it definitely drips with uh, privilege. My African using, students use that as a verb. Yeah, and drippe, tu to très drippe. Uh, you're dripping. You're, <laughs> it's, usually, it's about clothing and the look. So it's very. Uh, I think a lot of that privilege is really held um, mostly on this just this visual plane of just what you see you can see yeah. it. they don't have to go into it and talk about how big parties they have or big great vacations they have with their families it, you just see it it's this very very visual um, privilege that you see and that's you know it's done quickly and, and efficiently um, shall I tell you a bit more of the story or is oh, there oh yeah. yeah tell me the story so we open on this calm river it's deep and slow passing under a bridge at a through a public military school campus, it's probably Oxford, as you said. However, um, there's a quick move, sort of a, f- a flash forward, I guess, is what that is. It goes to we see see yeah. a, a sur title for um, Moscow, 1983, um, and I think that's Rupert Everett, but he's he's sort of like an old looking geriatric kind of <laughs> Rupert Everett. It's very bizarre because, of course, I said you see the baby forms of these actors that you know now. Um, here, he must have been what. Twenty years old and he's playing, yeah, uh, something like Eighty that. year old or ninety year old. Um, it's not so believable. It's kind of, <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. Um, anyway, he's in a hair. He's in a it's, wheelchair
1: because he's kind of, Yeah, he's elderly because he's got lots of kind of wrinkly skin. Yeah, but he's still got you know, and he's in a wheelchair, but he's got great posture. Hasn't great he? posture. He's his thing up so
0: straight. His voice is uh, perfectly fine and young. It's just, it's a little odd. So I might have cast a. Someone a little older there. And in fact, I, was, I wasn't sure if it was Rupert's character, uh, Guy Bennett, or if it was uh, Cary uh James Harcourt. But oh. um, he's there. Um, and it's, I think, for me, the the beginning and the end, and we've talked about this a lot in the last couple episodes, but it's a little ham-handed. There's these bookend features where we get uh, Guy Bennett, Rupert, um, Rupert uh, Everett's character at the beginning, and then we come back to him at the end. There's not a lot in between there. Um and there are a lot of photographs. We see a lot of photographs of the young boys on campus Um, in his apartment in Moscow. He's old, uh, infirm. Um, He has like a man helper perhaps slash lover caring yeah. for him. Uh, the man never has a line of dialogue and we don't really know their relationship. But it's sort of by the end, I think. Uh, they are partners. Um, he's reminiscing about 1920s uh, military school in England with a woman doing some sort of um, reporting on his life or something like There, She sh- found him in, in Russia after all these years and yeah. getting his take on the, his story as a youth in England. Um, on that campus, 1920s, late 20s, it looked like, um, he's one of a gang of sort of rebellious students. They're experiencing this frustration and ennui in the ranks of this military education and all these school rules that they have to follow – um, and right away we see that there's plenty of physical intimacy among the young men. Um, <laughs> it's not a secret, but it is sort of shunned by the administration and the old guard. Um, not, they don't get really punished for it um, in any way, so it, it's sort of understood or accepted, but um, when caught in a sex act with another boy, one young man takes his own life. It's the character of Martineau that they refer to um, later on. Um, so that sort of sets the tone of what's what's happening on the campus uh, beneath the surface. As I said before, a lot of this is surface. You see the uniforms. They're basically going to school in castles. They're living in these elaborate, beautiful dorms. Really seems like it's a, an environment for great education where, in fact, um, it seems like they're not really studying anything and they're just playing cricket. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, on the campus, Bennett and some of the other boys aspired to being gods. As far as I could tell, they were the guys who got to wear waistcoats.
1: Like your own personalized colored, waistcoat very colored waistcoats. very colored waistcoats, yeah. The peach colored uh, waistcoats.
0: And then they, the following year, they would be sort of the cream of the crop of students. Um, his buddy is Tommy Judd, played by Colin Firth. He has no interest in perpetuating the English and the capitalist system. He's a seething communist. He's a fan of Stalin and the Soviet Union. He's openly critical of the school and he really believes in revolution against uh, colonialism. So you've got these um, young men who are really, um, I think, rebelling against uh, some of the, the traditions of uh, military school life in England. Um, so Tommy, however, doesn't participate in a lot of the flirtations that the other boys um, sort of uh, encounter and endeavor. Um, but Bennett is uh, the Rupert Everett character. He insists that everyone gives in in the end. It's very interesting. Um, Mothers don't know what is happening, he says, but the fathers do. So it seems like this is a tradition (laughs) of when they're away from home and living among boys, they do have um, intimate relationships with other boys. um, And it's, as a result, they sort of, they're hiding. It's this sort of game of playing, um, that they're playing where they're hiding um, what they're doing um, on campus. And um, it's, well, truthfully, they're just not really learning. I didn't see any – there are no schoolroom scenes. Like at least uh, the Holdovers has a scene where they're learning something. But um, it, there's not much investigation in that part of their lives. Um, they play some war games. They play cricket, as I mentioned before. And Bennett has uh, plenty of time to watch out his window. And he falls in love with Carrie Elwes' character, which is James Harcourt, who lives in another house on campus. Um, they eventually arrange a meeting in a restaurant. Um shortly after Bennett attends the wedding of his mother to her new stepfather, who's another military man. And um, they start a relationship, um, and it has to be a clandestine relationship. Um, and we learn right about that same time, I think he confesses his maybe to Tommy that um, Bennett's father died during sex which mm. gave me these whispers of Bo is Afraid. Do you remember Bo is Afraid? Oh, uh, yes.
1: <laughs> so, so do you think maybe he has a, a penis monster in the, <laughs> in the yeah, attic? That's right.
0: How did I forget the penis monster? Oh, it's good. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm sure we'll hear about that in our uh, end-of-year awards show. Um, <laughs> uh and his his family actually seems like they want Bennett to leave school and work, so I think there's this a lot of pressure on uh, Bennett he's falling in love, he's bored at school he's really crazy for uh, James Harcourt and um, sort of wants to have a relationship with him, but at this time, because of the suicide on campus and uh, and uh, the death of the young man that um, um, I think that's certainly um shunned at school at that time. So that's kind yeah. of the first act that's the whole setup for what's going to happen later.
1: What's what I find you know, fascinating so I'm that the film is you know largely sort of about homophobia. There's lots of homophobia in the film. Yeah. And yet the the thing which um, most offends you know the people who discover that you know some boys are screwing around with other boys isn't so much that it's two boys together it's that you know he's screwing around with a boy from another house yeah that's the thing that really outrages them isn't it which i think is you know which is the point i think it's you know it's to show that um, the kind of divisions that you sow in society it's important to choose you know what side you're on and which house you're in at school is probably more important than whether you bat for this side or that side it's all about keeping it in there in the house.
0: Stay, keep it in the house, yeah. It's, it was very odd. I mean, a lot of this—I I loved this idea that the fathers knew what was going on and the mothers didn't, or the, and the <laughs> parents were just sort of pretending to know, and the, and the the students had to put up an appearance where this wasn't happening, whereas everyone knows it was happening. It reminded me of that last kind of creepy moment in The History Boys where— um, the, the the protagonist is saying that he's learned from his teacher to pass it on, pass it on. Like this is a tradition that's passed down through generations. Uh. So that even some of the military instructors who are on campus, and even the the then it's mother's new husband, they probably know what what happened and. Whether they participated in it or not, it happened. There was homosexuality on the on the campuses, in part because the kids are bored and they, there are no women around in some cases. And Bennett has this interesting perspective that, oh, everyone's going to start doing it. But uh, Bennett um, says for him it's real. He definitely – he prefers men. He really wants to be with Harcourt and that's sort of the – what takes us through the second and third acts. I was going to ask you, how old are the boys in this one? I mean, you asked me that in the last one. I think they were – Maybe late teens or twenty years.
1: I think so. I think they are seventeen and eighteen. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I think that's what age they are. Okay. You know, we will probably talk about uh, my perception of the school in this film yeah. um, a bit later on. That the, the, the uh, one aspect of the homophobia in this film uh, that kind of struck me watching it was that um, you know it's a film set in the nineteen thirties but made in the nineteen eighties. You know, both of those times, yeah. homosexuality was homosexuality was broadly illegal in the UK and mm-hmm. certainly taboo. Yeah. And I think the whole point of making the play or the film um, in the 80s was to talk about attitudes to homosexuality in the 80s rather than just reflecting purely on a historical set of, uh, set of events. But um, we're watching it today in 2023 when Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and RuPaul's Drag Race are like you know, primetime family TV shows. Yeah. Yep. That in, the, in the UK we have Strictly Come Dancing, which is like a huge BBC Saturday Evening Hit Show, and uh, where um, celebrities pair up with professional dancers and do dance routines. And I think it would be realistically impossible to make a a season of that show now without at least one same sex couple. I think if there wasn't one same sex couple, then the audience would say, "Well, this is a bit prejudicial." Yeah. Where's 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 the gay couple? That's not not on. You can't have a purely hetero version of this show. (laughs) That's disgusting. I'm ripping up my license fee. Yeah. Um. And in a way, I want to feel like, well, yay! Look, we we often talk about progress on this podcast. That's probably progress, isn't it? That's great. And which which doesn't mean to say that um, I'm saying to any LGBTQ listeners, yay, everything is rosy now. Sit yeah. down, keep quiet. But but um, but it is nice, isn't it? I think that somehow the the homophobia in this film, maybe from my very lucky privileged point of view. That p word again. Mm. Um, seems a bit old fashioned now.
0: Yeah, I think I think you had a good point before if if we didn't have um LGBTQ characters in stories now it would seem inaccurate somehow. Like uh you're, you're yeah. not including them because it's it would be denying that they exist. Um it's interesting you talk about homophobia because for me it was just a o- very open examination of of homosexuality at this school. It, it, there were a couple of characters I guess who disapproved, but they all understood somehow. So it was it was interesting to yeah. me. And a little caveat: I just when I realized that when I was talking about the History Boys, I left out a vital piece of information is that they they have a teacher who is basically seeking sexual favors from younger students. So there's a little pedophilia element to that film. Um, uh, so it's um, it's it's I I really appreciated the openness of it. I thought that was and especially for 1984, 83, 84. I thought that was really. Um, really really honest and 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 uh seemed revolutionary to me given the year and i imagine the play was a few years even before that so you know you know back into the late 70s or early 80s that
1: that said though it is honest i should. Sure we'll i'm i'm slightly jumping the gun yeah. here with the synopsis but when we do come to see you know a little bit of uh cuddling between two characters yeah you know either either you know the camera is extremely coy and looks away yeah or um or we're left with two characters having you know a little bit of a hug in a boat yeah. It. and and um, <laughs> you know nothing tremendously sexy, happens. yeah
2: it's
0: tame, yeah uh
1: so so it's it's still kind of you know um pussy around
0: I was gonna say a couple of years before my beautiful Laundrette, which you do see a bit more affection, i think uh um yes. this by yeah by comparison, this seems quite tame, um Harcourt and benefit Bennett start this uh, secret courtship, they have to meet after hours and at night sneaking out of their respective houses um it's very secretive. Um, and I think in part, I guess it's extra secretive maybe because of what happened to Martineau when he was, um, caught with another boy. Um, and there's this business of running down a drain pipe. I thought this. I want to talk about setups and payoffs when we, when we go into a bit more detail in this film, because, um, the drain pipe is set up and that's just a route for them to climb out of their sort of dormitory rooms and meet on campus. Um, and then there's this this bit about—there's sort of like a power play here, too, because everyone wants to be a god, um, and there's this possibility that someone's going to leave the campus, which opens up a space for someone to be a prefect. Um, it's offered to Tommy, the Colin Firth character. He's really not into that sort of hierarchical thinking to begin with. So, um, But it just seems like a, a natural stage that everyone wants to get up to be the god status. Um, it starts to be jeopardized because Bennett is— um, and you know, he's much more interested in Harcourt. And of course, if, you know, if he's found out, I think that he might lose the ability to become a god. Um, and then Bennett is an, an intentionally unprepared for this disciplined line They're in a war game. I think, what did they call it? Jackabout or something like that? I forget what it was called. It was a game that they were preparing yeah. for. Um, so he intentionally loses for his team. And then he's also busted for trying to meet up with Harcourt. And he gets flogged for not giving up James Harcourt's name, I guess, as the... Um, is the object of his affections. Um, Bennett, yeah, this is the one Bennett suggests that he's different from the others because um, his homosexuality is not just a phase that that, that others pass through and grow out of. Um, he says, I'm never going right. to love women. And he accuses Tommy of being judgmental. He says, you think some are better than others because of the way they make love. So there's some great lines in there about, um, yeah. Yeah. just like addressing homosexuality for late teens, uh, late teen men who are, Really, in a very masculine world, there are two women in this film. It's Bennett's mother and the woman who's interviewing
2: mm, Bennett at yeah. the very end of the
0: film. That's it. Um found it like there was a very sudden ending. All of a sudden, um, uh, there's this one line, if only communism were true. Um, he says that in sort of an, a voiceover is part of the interview he's doing with the young journalist. Um, he says that Tommy died in a civil war. So I assume that was in Spain. Uh, yeah. We assume he goes to live in the Soviet Union. That maybe he eventually did choose um, communism, for sort of following in Tommy's lead or to honor him. Um, it's an interesting choice because I, I assume Russia or the Soviet Union um, was less tolerant of homosexuality than even England was. Um, um, and the film just sort of ends right there.
1: I think the film assumes some knowledge which not all the people watching it will have. Yeah. Certainly not today. Which is, I think, the film is a barely disguised. Film about a real life spy called Guy Burgess, Um, who was you know who was kind of somebody who uh, had a job in the UK government. I couldn't tell you what, um, and then was spying for the Soviet Union. You know, and then eventually he was kind of rumbled and defected Uh. and and given safe harbor there in the in the uh, Soviet Union, um, which is why. This woman turns up to interview him and find out about his life as a spy uh-huh. at the beginning of the film. So I think the filmmakers assume yeah. that you know that the old man in the wheelchair at the start of uh-huh. the film with the not very convincing makeup is a well-known British spy who has defected to the, to the Russians. Um, and then this is the story of explaining why it was that he decided it was right to betray his country and spy on Britain for those, uh-huh. those Ruskies. Um but now that we are forty years after the release of the film, and yeah. you know people aren't quite so uh, aware of the idea that um, people may be spying on behalf they, of the Soviet Union, uh, it's a little bit of cultural knowledge which you know the average viewer won't have. Yeah. Um, so it's something that the film fails to explain.
0: Yeah. So a, a, an opening title and a closing title might have helped. Um, even just not changing his name because uh, he's yeah, Guy maybe, Bennett in the yeah. film, and it, it's interesting because I think this this feels very theatrical to me this feels like a play in so many ways and um i one of my biggest thoughts on the film was just um, i don't i think as a writer i don't ever want to feel too compelled to tether myself too much to the reality of a story it's like if you uh, want to make a great film make it and just you know you can say it's inspired by um, or just make up new characters that basically stand in for the, the historical characters because if you if you follow the average life it's pretty boring um <laughs> speak for yourself yeah, and man. a spy's life should be more interesting um but this sounds really kind of close maybe too close to this the true story so it doesn't this is not an action film by any means i wouldn't say like a whole yeah. lot happens in this film it's a beautiful you know looking film it's a good looking film but it does feel very theatrical it feels very much like a play um the 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 payoff at the end is this uh, idea of he what does he miss about uh, England and what does he miss about you know his school days and he says I miss the cricket and that's the very last line of the film obviously they they don't have cricket in the Soviet Union but um, uh, yeah I think maybe we should go to some of your thoughts because you obviously know the culture better I mean I liked the idea that they're this another country is really talking about how different I guess um england is from in the 1980s from what it was in the in the 1920s and 30s but tell me things that i've missed
1: well i i saw the film when it was originally released i think or a few years after it was originally released but in in the uk and um um, i remember you know at the time um it being a very popular film with the ladies because there were so Good many looking. sort of beautiful but yeah. yeah slightly fey but you know generally very attractive young men in the film you know the camera loves the the men in yeah. this film um you know they are absolutely beautiful uh, and as you say there aren't really many female characters but lots of beautiful young men to watch and they all look yeah. absolutely uh, ravishing um i feel like i clearly remember when i originally saw the film there is a line in it, um, and I don't remember hearing that line this time round, and maybe you can tell me either, oh, the line was in it, the line was not in it, or that line is from a yeah. different film and you're remembering <laughs> wrong. But um, the line I remember is um, that uh, Rupert Everett says, the past is another country, they do things differently there. Ooh, maybe. I don't remember it. Right? Yeah, I see. I don't remember it. And I I wonder whether that line, uh, which is rung in my mm-hmm. mind, um, for uh many, many years is from another film or a poem or a song or something else completely unconnected.
0: Yeah, did you ever see the play? Maybe it was in the play but doesn't really appear in the in the I
1: film. don't recall going okay. to see. So I uh, hear here we go. So it is a quote from L P. Hardley, according to Google. Mm-hmm. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Okay. Well, okay. I don't know why that has wound up in my brain. It's just me conflating two different
2: things.
1: (laughs) Oh, good. Also, I was was waiting during this film for the bit where uh, the monkeys all get excited at that large monolith and then go to the moon. And that didn't happen either.
0: (laughs) Um, That definitely happens. That's a great moment. I remember that one. (laughs) not in this film, the, in this film. <laughs> um, I,
1: I do want to go back to what you were talking about for for setups and payoffs yeah because i tell you what i wrote in my notes the shape of this story is a bit blobby mm. is what i wrote yeah um because it kind of establishes the stakes fairly early on you learn that guy who mm. is going to be our central character he lusts after james mm-hmm. good name great hair yeah um he wants to become <laughs> a god uh one of the top Prefix at the school. And yeah. the, but then two boys are caught having a little romantic tryst. Yeah. I, I read down in my notes, um, they're having a bit of how's your father, which is what people would have called it in the 1980s. <laughs> um, and, and, you, and, and because of that, then there's a kind of a crackdown. And that means that um, Guy doesn't get his wish to become one of the elite. Yeah. But um, the film kind of sets up this notion, you know, a character who wants or needs something. You know, and then you make it difficult for them to get it, but then it doesn't quite connect the events, I think. No. So I feel like, you know, a lot of the events of the film kind of bumble along. You know, he has this kind of love affair, but it's very chaste. They just have a bit of a cuddle in a boat, you know, and there's a bit of a talk about Marx. and there's some climbing up a drain pipe, and you know, there's some passing backwards and forwards of notes. And then at the very end of the the film you know, it sort of slightly comes to a head and Guy gets spanked. And, you know, none yeah. of that really seems to matter to him particularly. The thing that really stings is that he gets denied his promotion. Yeah. Um. And and somehow it doesn't quite manage to tie all these different stakes together. I feel like there should be a lot of tension in this notion that, you know, there's a limited number of boys who can be prefects. And if they, we don't have enough prefects, then you won't be able to get to be a god. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, Colin Firth's character has to compromise his ideals and agree to become a prefect, even yeah. though that's the last thing he wants because, you know, he wants to help out his friend and he has this big choice to make. Shall I go with, you know, my Marxist ideals or shall I help out my friend and get him the thing that he wants? Um, but somehow you never really feel the tension in any of these decisions. And it feels a little bit easy come easy co and yeah. a little bit arbitrary. And so the end of the film doesn't quite have the impact that it might. Um, the story it feels like it's there, but just needs someone to, to to put a string around it and pull a bit tighter and just concertina it all together and let it become a little bit more integrated. It's an enjoyable film to watch. It's short. It's only ninety minutes. There's yeah. lots of beautiful things to look at, mm-hmm. um, but doesn't quite come away with the tension that I think um, could have been there. Not if, at all. If, if it had just been a bit tense, if yeah. it had been a, bit, a little bit tighter.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's a bit of a snoozer for a 90-minute film. Um, and when I'm talking about payoffs, setups and payoffs, it's like no, no one ever falls from that drain pipe. Um, mm. There's never a superior watching the grounds at night. Kids can just go out and you might as well just go out with the front door. Why are you going down the drain pipe? <laughs> um, and yes. the drain pipe's in perfectly good shape. You know, I want to see some vines. I want to see it like leaning and bending a little bit and eventually cracking and falling with the young man on it. Um, yeah. The, the biggest of all there's really no resolution for Bennett and Harcourt being together at all. I mean the last 10 minutes yeah. are, it they just that story disappears and that's sort of the main story of the whole film. Um to, Tommy's never set up to be a spy or um you know we don't really know we are just told that he goes to I assume Spain I think it was I thought it said the Spanish Civil War but civil war in yeah. the 1930s and dies there fighting for for the cause. Um and even the the opening scene and closing scene, they don't really add much. And I even wonder was was that part of the play? I doubt it. Um, it just seems like one of these film things that you you glue onto a play in order to make it a film. You oh, here's the the bookend scenes. Um, so as a result, I just wasn't really that invested in the in the characters because I wasn't worried about them at any time. They were you know
2: yeah. privileged
0: boys at a, at a, on a college campus or a school campus and not getting into trouble. They got to get into trouble. Um, and yeah never there's never any pressure on uh james and 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 Guy when they're sort of breaking the rules and meeting together at night um nothing so yeah i I think there were just some obvious things that seemed like and maybe they didn't exist maybe the drain pipe didn't exist in the play. i find that hard to believe but it,
1: well i I wonder whether um someone falling off a drain pipe is you know a difficult, challenging thing to do in a play and do it safely and do it well sure. and so you think well. Um, you're, you're just not going to write a play where that is your you know your big pivotal plot point it's a bit dangerous and a bit yeah. you know a bit scary um so instead you know you you know you make your plot points all kind of you know emotional and you have lots of scenes of people talking in rooms and so when it becomes a film well you don't have the option of of you know of um yeah taking the most pivotal exciting action-packed plot points from the play because they aren't there yeah so you end up you know trying to expand it and make it a little bit more visual and a little bit more physical but none of the visual physical things you introduce can be major plot points if you're going to stick to the the shape of the play instead yeah you just end up with set dressing in between people talking in rooms which is the meat of the story yeah i i personally did enjoy um the film okay but yeah largely from a visual point of view and yeah. from i i I got a lot of the pleasure of um, of having so many Oh it's that guy Moments Yeah um, <laughs> And maybe that is where A lot of the pleasure Exists still For this film We saw Rupert Everett The other week In Napoleon yeah. He's still a good looking bloke Yeah um, But yeah A very beautiful young man In this film Oh God um, you know, and, and there's no shame In enjoying a film Because there's somebody Beautiful in it that's Yeah yeah all
0: right. So many beautiful uh, Settings I mean it's a beautiful film Just on the, the landscapes And the buildings And the architecture And the boys that's it's got all that going for it but i think boy i don't know if it's like if if that's if if that's the depth it's not deep enough if that's the top the most you know the go- most gorgeous part that's also that's not deep enough it's just that you just have that you need something on one side or the other either some more heart or more action on top of that and and i'm not really sure if that's the the like the surface of the film or the bowels of the film, this film either needs more bowels and ugliness or it needs more, um, super superficial stuff. It needs like some action on top of the boys. That sounds crazy. Need something for them to do other than other boys and other than meeting up at night and not really doing anything.
1: I wonder whether this, this notion that nothing very bad ever happens to any of the boys in the film is kind of like a meta story, isn't it? Yeah. Because that's going to be the story for the rest of their lives as well, isn't it? Yes. Apart, sadly, from Tommy, who gets killed in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. Everybody else can look forward to a very comfortable life with a nice house of the country and a job with the government and yeah. you know, probably a cabinet position. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, at the end of the film... Um, Guy is complaining bitterly, isn't he, that he's not going to become ambassador to, I can't remember what countries he oh, says, right, but it's yeah. something like he's not going to become ambassador to Monaco. He's going yeah. to have to become ambassador to Madagascar or something yeah. like that, someplace that he doesn't want to go, which yeah. is not glamorous. Whereas, you know, most people um, don't really have the option of being ambassador to any country, whether it's a nice one or a difficult one.
0: Yeah. I think there's a critical mistake, honestly. I think it's that um, if they're sneaking around and occasionally worrying about getting caught or that, for a good part of the film, then that's a different story than someone getting caught in the first five minutes yeah. and that person hanging themselves a few minutes later. If that is the end of act two... Oh, excuse me, I just hit my microphone. If that <laughs> happens at later in the film, if Martineau actually um, kills himself at the, at the end of act two and we've had all this tension, then you've got something that we're worrying about the whole time. Who's going to get yeah. busted? What's going to happen when they get busted? Uh, but by having all that happen in the first 10 minutes there's nowhere to go. It seems like you've, you've wasted your one death kind of early on and, and it's nothing's going to die at the end of act two. And so there's just, there's, it's amazing. There's really no tension. I watched this, this film passed over me. I watched it. Of course I wasn't super <laughs> engaged, but um, I just wanted more. I felt like there should be a lot more that happens.
1: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. No, I I, I, I think I agree. I, I'm going to move the conversation on to um, our next segment mm. because I think that may explain a little bit about what I saw in the film. okay I, I'm gonna ask you to ask me, who am I? Who am I? James, who are you? <laughs> that is a good question cause <laughs> I, um, because I basically I, I went to the schools in both of these films. Oh my. Or at least you know, I, I, like I kind of sort of did, I vividly saw a kind of a part of my life in both of these films when i went to see the film originally and i think i i'm looking back now i think i must have been at university yeah um but uh i saw it with um, some friends who had been to the same school that i did because i remember they commented afterwards uh basically that was our school wasn't it yeah um i remember my kind of much cleverer than me friend jamal i used to go and see films with and he would see you know extremely uh deep clever interpretations in them whereas i would just see or uh, bit of car chasing and a joke um uh and he kind of observed you know, that, that um the school in another country and the school that he and i had both gone to was basically the same or at least the school that we went to would love to present itself as the school in another country ah. if, if our school published a, a glossy brochure it would use photographs that were carefully posed to look like they were shots out of another country but we had you know my school didn't have borders Um, we didn't sleep in dorms Mm -hmm. under woolen blankets but um, I went to school where we had houses and we had prefects and we had house prefects who were kind of like under prefects who would hope the whole year of them being house prefects that the following year they would be promoted from house prefect to proper prefect we didn't have waistcoats but we had ties so we went to school in suits and we had ties uh, in the junior school the tie had a colour which explained what house you were in and then once you are a house prefect you would get a different tie and uh, if you did well in your exams you get a founder's tie which would be a different tie that you could wear and then if you had a pre became a prefect you had yet another tie which showed that you were <laughs> one of the elite and you you'd wear this special tie with with um you know, with pride and elan um there was a combined cadet force at my school which means that uh, every friday a huge number of the boys would dress up in army uniforms uh, they would spend you know, many, many hours polishing their boots and then practicing marching. And then, you know, because you'd practiced your marching so well and you'd polished your boots so well, maybe one afternoon a term, you get to go to the school firing range and fire a rifle. Um, you know, all of these things really happened in wow. my childhood. My, my school had a war memorial outside it, um, much like the kind of the statue in the quadrangle uh in the 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 school in the film uh our war memorial was a statue of a young man uh in i think the first world war uh who was uh jumping over the top to head into battle and gesturing to his his uh comrades behind him to follow him to take on the enemy i mean looking looking back now and thinking of our Contemporary attitudes to the First World War. That's a pretty grotesque statue yeah. to show to teenage boys as soon as they arrive at your new school. But um this this is the school that I went to. And um I think although the school that I went to was not nearly as uh um full of the, the great and the good and the highly influential, uh you know, one of the old boys at my school did become Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK. Uh, and uh, one of the old boys at my school was D.H. Lawrence, although the thing that the school doesn't tell you is that they threw him out after a year for writing his name in graffiti on one of the fireplaces.
0: Oh. But, um, <laughs> so you you are
1: these guys. I vividly see myself uh, on screen, although sadly I do not look like uh, Rupert Everett or Colin Firth. I, I look know. like one of the spotty boys in the background who didn't get much screen time. But, um, you know, I I... Very self-consciously identified with the kids in this film because I went to that school.
0: I I think you're a bit more handsome than most of those guys, (laughs) especially as an older man.
1: As an older man, you're right. Yes, but I don't have a I don't have a Russian manservant to wheel me around in a wheelchair. <laughs> That's what I'm missing out.
0: On, yes. Now, was that your take that he was a lover or a partner? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Again, exactly. pretty subtle. He,
1: was only, he seemed to be a combination of manservant and yeah, lover, wasn't he? I suppose. Exactly. Um, what, what's the What's the term from uh, Spartacus? Body servant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was uh, what that man was, I suppose. Oof. Now that I've told you the story of
0: my life, yeah.
1: Um... Was there anybody in t- the two films we watched today that you thought you resembled?
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, when you see a doctor, you are a doctor. <laughs> I've learned that on the program. When I see a teacher, I don't have
1: much imagination. You're right. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, well, no, I have no more than you do. When I see a teacher, I am a teacher. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Paul Hunnam with the uh, with uh, Paul Giamatti with his body odor, his failing eyes. <laughs> The strict, unchanging, old-school demeanor, uh, the miserly and unoriginal approach to Christmas gift gifting <laughs> Doesn't he give uh, Marcus, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius a uh, memoir book to everyone at that Christmas dinner? It's lovely. Um, plus that thing about listening. Um, he's listening to the Beethoven Emperor Concerto at one point in the film. Ah. I've been listening to that a lot lately in honor of uh, Napoleon, Joaquin Phoenix, and Ridley Scott. So uh, I really identified with uh, with Giamatti. Um but mostly on that, mostly on that level of the, just the teacher level.
1: You see, well, I, I can I can see you in him, but not because of the body odor, oh. um, but be, because of, he's just so, I mean, he is tremendously clever, isn't he? He's a clever guy. For all that he may have personal faults and he has um, issues and problems to surmount, you know, he's a tremendously well-educated man extremely clever, extremely witty, very quick off the mark. You know, he's never blustering around for a witty comment. He's always got one right there at the tip of his tongue. And he's yeah you know what? Um for all the way that the kids complain that he smells and he doesn't understand them, I think poor Giamatti in that film looks like great company. Yeah. I think if I had to spend the Christmas with him we would have a blast. Yeah, I think it'd be a blast.
0: I love yeah, I love his character. I love the the actor. I think he does a great job. And I think he, you know, as we start to synthesize a little bit, I think uh, Payne's films are really about these um, very believable, very fallible characters um, living very real lives, but introducing a lot of humor and whimsy to them. Um, And I think uh, for me, just not just being from a different culture and a different era, it was so much harder to identify myself with um, any of the another country characters. Um, Yeah. And it let me pain has this wonderful thing of putting those those whimsical scenes in into a, a film that where people are just kind of doing stupid things, which is what people do. Um, the firecracker in the New Year's Eve kitchen scene um, is wonderful. The the arm dislocation, we should probably talk about that <laughs> because you're a doctor and all that. Um, is it creme brulee or some sort of cake baked, baked, baked Alaska? They, they end up burning a box full of dessert <laughs> on a car. He's got these scenes in there that are just so dis, disarming and okay. Oh, uh, that's a pun because he gets the arm look dislocated, uh, disarming, and just so real. These characters are just so real, and I think he really brings those kinds of stories to um, the screen very successfully. Um, so let's let's talk about the arm dislocation quickly as you start to synthesize as well. Was that accurate? Well, what what did they do with the guy's arm? As an actor, it looked like it was dislocated
1: i i don't know how they did that because was either great makeup and cgi mm-hmm. or they literally dislocated his arm it's one of those two because it was tremendously convincing um the <coughs> excuse me i think it was probably the view that we got of his shoulder from the rear would have been a a, a convincing looking prosthetic okay um it, it's uh no matter how good dominic Sessa is it seems like a, a Uh, A big ass to expect him to dislocate his arm in his first film. (laughs) That's the one thing you can get him to do that, I think. If it was Daniel Day Lewis, then I would have believed it. Yeah, yeah, that guy probably would dislocate his arm for a film role. But um, but I I have done that relocation of an arm a few times myself and done exactly that. Most commonly, you do it in in a it's an elderly frail lady or gentleman yeah. who doesn't have a great deal of muscle mass and doesn't have a great deal of muscle tone, and you yeah. give them just a little bit of sedation. Yeah. You have a gentle pull, and it pops back in. Oof. But sometimes you get like a big burly rugby lad who's had his arm dislocated, Ugh. and then you know, it genuinely is one foot in the armpit. Um, it's you know it's it's um, it's very hard work, and you get your mates in to help you. Um, so I've done it. Uh, and it was, it, yeah, generally, yeah, especially if you're a young man, it's about as painful as it looked in the real film. Obviously not painful to me, though, so that's all right. Yeah. Let's do our synthesis. Let's try we'll, yeah. We will bring the two films together, because I do think they have got quite a bit in common, and I think that's sort of where you know the heart of the pod lies. It's, 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 uh, let's bring them together. Oh, the heart of the pod. What am I talking about? Isn't that fair?
0: I've, I've just made that up. It's not really the, the, the part of the pod. Of the pod, the peas in the pod, it's the pod at the core of the pod. Damn,
1: yeah, I, I so I wrote down in my notes, I wrote these films are about, and I wrote dot 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 <laughs> dot. I think they're so they're like about outsiders, I think, trying to bring them together. It's like it's so it is about sort of snobbery, yeah, and fear, and about self loathing. I think is an important kind of um, notion that they have in common, and they're about you know fitting in not being in with the crowd uh, and whether you care about that or not. Um, but, you know, be- beneath all these kind of these small personal tales, I think also they are both about the P word, uh, which we brought up at the yeah. beginning of the show, privilege, mm-hmm. um, about, you know, they're both about kind of expectation and these these kind of small, the small nested worlds of the wealthy. That's what I wrote in my notes. Mm-hmm. And the way that the world is run you know, the outer world is run from inside these small nested worlds of the wealthy, because the I had I'd looked up some statistics. Uh often in the UK is basically run by the graduates of schools like these. Boris Johnson went to Eton. Jacob Rees-Mogg went to Eton. Kwasi Kwarteng went to Eton. David Cameron went to Eton. Rishi Sunak went to Winchester College, but you get the idea. Yeah. Um, you know, these films, they're set in the past. They're set 90 years ago and 50 years ago. But they are, I think, both still about, they have something to say about the world that we see today. Um, and it, I, I mean, it does make me wonder, how how have we managed to maintain an autocracy not vastly different, you know, to to the way that Europe was ruled by royal families of the 15th century? You know, wealthy individuals who had concentrated an enormous amount of money and were more or less buying generational power and influence uh through the spoils of their battles uh from the previous centuries we've still got the same thing we're still we're still we're still continuing um and you know these boys who are complaining about not getting into cornell because of their latin results yeah or the boys who are looking forward to a a, a crummy ambassadorship instead of a good one you know are still the same boys largely running uh the western nations today
0: yeah that's nice um I think you're spot on. I I always think of the best films as being when you've got protagonists who are ordinary people confronting extraordinary problems. And in, in these two films you basically have more elite people um confronting really quite uh, trite problems. Problems that really are <laughs> they're not not that grand at all. They're they're lower than ordinary, which is funny cuz extraordinary means better than ordinary somehow (laughs) but we don't have the same word for less than ordinary um banal problem so it's it i think you know both films to a certain extent from from like a dramatic standpoint they they lack uh the real problems that that the average viewer kind of confronts as opposed to someone who's better off or more privileged um i think that I really think that The Holdovers does a really great job of just in terms of the craft of filmmaking, it's just really, really well shaped, it's really well performed and directed and it's it's pretty enough, right? But I mean, it's I think Alexander Payne yeah. realized you, you've got to tell a good story, it, it just can't be a pretty picture and I think another country very often is a pretty picture and probably people were giving him money to make the, the film because they realized, oh, it's going to be beautiful, Oxford campus and we're going to make it into this military school and um but I, I don't think it's it's as you said what he's you, you talked about its belly or something like that it doesn't have the doesn't have the same shape uh it doesn't have the same tension points and um and it doesn't have that extraordinary as you said these these the luxury of having a few themes that run through it in in chunks of thirty and forty minutes um so uh I think they definitely both are very open about the privilege. I thought I liked that. I really love the, fi- the idea of a helicopter coming down onto campus to whisk <laughs> away these bored kids on, in the holdovers, um, or some of the, just the sheer wealth that you see in um, in another country. So they're both very honest about privilege. Uh, one film is very honest about homosexuality, which is refreshing, especially because it's forty something years old now. Um, but i think yeah they're definitely about people with problems it's just i think the to a certain extent the the success of the films depends on the degree of the elite and the degree of the problem
2: mm.
0: and i think that it's 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 hard to relate to rich military school kids i think who have what could probably be labeled as lesser problems than maybe a less rich <laughs> private school kid who's been kicked out of three schools, um, having some like problems with his father, problems with his mother, problem with his shoulders, we see. So um, uh, I think uh, it's the degree of problems and the degree of protagonist, I think, somehow dif- differentiates the two films.
1: It's, yeah, yeah, good point. I made a little list, actually, of the, yeah. the problems that The holdovers kind of tries to address. And it was, as I was writing them down, I was kind of realizing more and more that for a film set in 1970 mm. um the problems that the characters address feel very very contemporary so the, the problems are anxiety uh, the loneliness epidemic i've written yeah. institutional racism uh, yep. and mental health which is kind of, you know, this it, which is now like a buzzword that's become part of everyday speech following yeah. the pandemic but in oh, 1970 it yes. wasn't something that people would discuss precisely you know, openly at all um, so it, I don't know whether that holdover suggests that, look, these things existed in the 70s too, or whether it's more just saying through the lens of the 1970s, let's discuss some of 2023's um, malaises. Yeah. Um, but either way. Yeah. I, I enjoyed another country, but I um, really felt uh, the holdovers. Yeah. I, I think yeah, it's reasonable that they go hand in hand, but they're talking about largely different things, yeah. I
0: think. Yeah, I think so.
1: Um, well, uh, shall we also talk about what else has been playing at this theatre?
0: I went to the theatre one time to see The Holdovers. <laughs> my my theatre is pretty small right now. It is a 13-inch uh, laptop computer, I'd say. Ooh. Where I recently saw um, "Leave the World Behind."
1: Oh, I've read a lot about this online, but seen very little with my own eyes.
0: Okay, it's on the. Um, I think it was on the Netflix, was it? Mm. I think it is Netflix. Yeah, yeah. it was probably Netflix. Um, Julie Roberts, Ethan Hawke um, play this 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 couple who are um, on a vacation, renting a home, and uh, kind of the world just ends somehow. Mm. Um, I'm not going to recommend it too warmly. It's got a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's one of these films where the director had a clear vision and then shows off for about 2 hours. Oh. Like, okay. like I can really move a camera more than 20 minutes. <laughs> I know how to move a camera. Um so it, it it's it's distracting cuz I think and the the story is it could be really clever but it's just not good enough considering how much talent you have there. And you know, they, they, he definitely does know how to move a camera. It's fantastic. But every once in a while you want to say, stop moving the camera. Show me something <laughs> that matters. Um, so uh, I watched it. It was okay. It was interesting because the Obamas, Michelle and Barack Obama are listed as executive producers. I know that they have a production oh. company and they're giving money out. So for some reason they saw something in it. it sort of – I really wish it sort of uh, – Explored its premise a little bit more because it's this idea that um, by knocking out sort of the internet and um, the electrical grids around the United States that uh, the, the country could be attacked and, and overcome. But they also let animals go wild too, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So All of a sudden deer are ganging up on people and uh, pelicans are flying down from the sky to enjoy wealthy Owner uh, homeowners swimming pools and things like that. It just doesn't. It's
1: the only thing. The only thing that's keeping the pelicans in check is Facebook. You must realize that.
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Once Instagram is off, then the deers are going to be just
0: furious. Yes, exactly. Get their revenge on humanity. It's interesting how quickly nature changes. My likes. Carry on. Yes. (laughs) Um, So yeah, what about yourself? You've probably had some time to watch films (laughs)
1: lately. I I, um, (coughs) uh, had uh, the reason I'm coughing and keep turning away from the mic is because I had a little touch of the covid this week which meant that before i um utterly collapsed and, and slept for 18 hours straight i watched uh, a couple of things um uh curled up in bed uh, one of which was uh, beyond the infinite 2 minutes hmm. uh, which is a super low budget 2020 japanese comedy uh, filmed as a as a single take although you can see there are a few skillful moments but they have cut two uh, two shots together so, but it's probably filmed in about sort of eight or nine different takes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a comedy about a man who discovers that there is, uh, a kind of time loop between a webcam in the cafe that he runs and a monitor up in his bedroom upstairs above the cafe. So that, uh, when he's, uh, in his bedroom, he can see two minutes into the future. And when he's down in the cafe on the screen down there, he can see two minutes into the past. Mm. Uh, And to start with, it's just a bit unnerving and strange. And he goes up and down stairs between his bedroom and the cafe and has conversations with himself. But then some of his friends turn up and the whole thing kind of snowballs. Uh, It's joyfully short, only 70 minutes long. Um, It's just a blast. I laughed out loud several times. It's great fun. They really, really explore the idea. Um, They really go for it. And at the very end of the film, you get a tiny bit of behind-the-scenes footage, yeah during the credits and the whole film was shot on someone's iphone oh, absolutely incredible wow. just it's a bloke with an iphone and his mate with a boom um and presumably you know his friends or some kind of you know local actors being being the actors in it it's super super low budget It was probably made for 25 bu- bucks but um great fun
0: where where did you see it
1: uh it's on apple tv
0: oh good. Okay.
1: so it's just on apple tv i had read about it online um and uh, yeah you can rent it on apple tv for £1.99 or you can buy it outright for £3.99 mm. uh, which is probably about a quarter of the budget of the whole film <laughs> but, uh, I really enjoyed that i recommend it good fun um just time to do the socials oh, uh yeah. so on on instagram we are at two Real cinema club uh you can read the blog uh which is com. you can visit our youtube channel uh, and you can email us to realcinemaclub at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Ask us questions, uh, correct our mistakes, or pay mm. our exorbitant school fees. Mm. Uh, and uh, tell your friends about us. Leave a review if you can. It helps us out. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts. What are we watching next time?
0: Maestro, which is the Bradley Cooper film. Project. He's directing it. He's writing it. He's performing in it. He's conducting orchestras for real. <laughs> um, so we're looking at that. It's the story of Leonard Bernstein. And then we are watching um, – oh, I think we're doing the original West Side Story. Was that the final? Yeah, okay, I think so, it's
1: The original. The
0: original, which was uh, scored, of course, by Leonard Bernstein. So it should be very different. We're throwing a musical in. We haven't done too yeah. many musicals, I don't think. But that's a classic. Um, for me, it sort of feels like a great – Holiday program. Like, this was a great holiday program with the holdovers. Um, but also, West Side Story is this kind of thing that on the United States on, on broadcast television, they'll show it. It's long. It'll fill up a whole night when they need to fill up some time when everyone's on vacation. So it's, they'll turn it into a four-hour event from 7 to 11 at night or something like that. Um, so it feels perfect for the holidays. I'm really excited about these two films.
1: Right. Can't wait. I'm whistling the tunes already. Tonight, tonight. Um, yeah. Until next time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Season's greetings yes. uh, To all our listeners Yeah uh, Thanks for sticking with us Through the year uh, We're going to get To the popcorn content uh, yeah. For next week uh, We are going to discuss Film of the year uh, Very exciting This is the show I've been looking forward to For a whole year Yeah All year Because long. last year's one Was so much fun Till then Happy festive season to you
0: Yes Happy holidays
1: Enjoying holiday <coughs>
2: Oh dear
0: That's, a, that's huh. the sound Of the holidays Right there